Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right, I bring in Andreas Kluth right now, a Bloomberg opinion columnist who says we must start planning for a permanent pandemic. And um, Andreas, I want to say this is getting more and more understandable by the day. But are you being a little bit too pessimistic? I mean, you say recent developments suggest we may never achieve herd immunity. Yeah, that's correct. And that sounds pessimistic. It wasn't meant to be. And if you read the article, you know, the tone is, if anything, I'm trying to be cavalier about it. And I end on almost optimistic note. I think if this is if this is the way it's going, Matt, I think it's better to be realistic and factored into planning and into scenarios as a as a scenario than um, just lying to yourself. And, and as we I believe, as we have been like, oh, it'll be over next month. It'll be over in the summer, in the fall. We've been through this a few times. And um, we can go through the arguments, Matt. Um, but there is a bit of a consensus. Uh, oh, we will. Some, yeah. Um, <laughs> if, that, that it may be quasi-permanent, which is what Paul, I called it, yeah. Paul, Bloomberg opinion columnists have been saying to me a lot lately, if you read the article. <laughs> I'm pulling quotes out of the middle of the story. I read it start to finish. <laughs> me too. Oh, I did you, as well. Andreas, you talk about it in the in the um, in your piece about the whole concept of herd immunity. I think I think one of the working hypotheses in out there is that the combination of people that have already um, uh, had the uh, virus plus those that are vaccinated will be enough to get us to quote unquote herd immunity. Uh, what's the counter argument there? The counter argument is so so you're right. So you can get immunity from having had it and having antibodies and being immune that way or from being vaccinated in all the other diseases out there, including this one, we thought. The two, to boil the many arguments down to the two main ones, the first is we have now evidence from South Africa and Brazil that having had the disease does not make you immune to new variants, new mutations of the virus, so that there is no what they call cross-variant immunity. That essentially means that path to herd immunity isn't, may not be available. That leaves everything on the vaccines, and as you know, that's going well in some places and others, but that this isn't about that. The, the virus is mutating, mutating faster. Probably, it, I'm calling it an arms race between mm-hmm. new vaccines for new variants and new variants. But keep in mind there that evolution happens. It doesn't care where it happens. If you vaccinate everyone in Israel, which is about half of the people there, fine, maybe they could be safe temporarily, but next door Syria or Palestine, you know, or in Africa, it is mutating and the new strain, they will be unprotected against. And and that is that arms race we're in and we may lose. So I don't know uh, enough about this. And you're the historian, um, which is why we have you on. I thought that, for example, in the Spanish flu epidemic, which I know it's probably not PC to call it the Spanish flu, but the 1918 pandemic, um, we saw that virus evolve in a way that just made it like the common flu that we all get today. 
Um, basically, it, it still spread around, but it stopped killing people. And epidemiologists that we've spoken with have said that's a possibility with this virus as well. Why do you not think that's a likely path for it to take? I'm actually not have it, stating an opinion. I, I think this. I, I'm, I'm giving scenarios. What, right. First of all, the normal thing with, with pathogens, bacterial, viral, doesn't matter, is that the longer they evolve, they will eventually get better, get more transmissible, but weaker, because it's actually the way it gives you an evolutionary advantage. If you don't kill your host, mm-hmm. you get to propagate longer and hop on to the next one. But what we've seen, and this is why the article is coming out now, is what we've seen in recent months is variants emerging that are more transmissible, mm. but not uh, less severe. And I, there's the, the math, the epidemiological math is interesting, and I link to it, is if you have a virus that mutate, that gets more virulent, worse basically, but not more transmissible, you have linear growth in cases and deaths. But if you have what we have now of a virus that mutates, becomes more transmissible, and not less severe, you have exponential growth. And that is a so. So my, what I'm saying is not that we're all doomed. No, I'm not. I'm saying this is a scenario that I, so, so many people are taking very seriously. It just feels and, like you know, doom right now. Economy, we have to start planning for it. Andreas, you, you link to that math from Adam Kucharski at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. I, I, and I'm going to click on that. I haven't read it yet. But I'm just thinking, like, it's only been a minute, right? We've only been – we're only a year into this. And the – um, 1918 pandemic lasted a couple of years before it started to peter out. So I'm just, I, I guess I'm optimistic. I'm hopeful that we get an end, not, not only to the pandemic, but also eventually we get an end to these lockdowns. <laughs> and and you're allowed to be, can I say one last thing? Do we have time? Oh yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. You, yeah you have a couple minutes. Uh, for me, the purpose was to make this the curtain raiser, uh, basically a new premise or a new scenario which I want to follow up with uh, lots of other columns, if this is the case, because actually I'm, I'm optimistic on how, we'll, how resilient we are if this becomes the, the, the scenario. What does that mean for the economy, for politics, for how we work, how we study and learn, the kids, how we exercise, how we travel, all these other things? Because you will see amazing changes and you will see us become the future us in in this, and it will not be all bad. And by the way, the World Happiness Index just came out this week. We're almost as happy as we've always been. So, you know, <laughs> it's not the end of the world if the pandemic is almost uh, uh, permanent. And I think that's one misunderstanding. So that I want to clear that up. So, Andreas, just we have about 30 seconds here. What are you hearing from the biotech industry, from the pharma industry, about their ability to create vaccines that may be flexible and in order to handle the various uh, variants, I guess. I'm very bullish on the technology. I, I don't talk about companies. mRNA, which I've written about in a previous article, because this is an unbelievable opportunity for that technology to use messenger RNA to make any protein we want for the body to create immunity against that protein, because mm. those are the vaccines. If we have a shot in the, in the arms race I described of winning it, it's because of those vaccines. And once we've built up, as we are now doing, this enormous manufacturing and, and research capacity for that technology, yep. we can yep. use it against cancer. Cancer. Yep. That's the next goal. 
And that would be uh, definitely reason for optimism. Andreas, thanks very much for joining us. Andreas Kluth is a Bloomberg opinion columnist. He's also the author of Hannibal and Me. And you can read his work and the work of his colleagues on the terminal by typing O-P-I-N-Go. This is Bloomberg. Let's talk a little bit about real estate and what it's going to look like as we come out of this pandemic, assuming that we will. Um, the vaccine rollout is going really well in the U.S. and, and the U.K. Um, and I want to bring in Lisa Nee for that. She's the co-leader for national the national real estate practice at Eisner Amper. And Lisa, it's really interesting because this morning we saw some headlines about banks in Hong Kong that are giving up space. And of course, um, I've spoken to the CEO of Deutsche Bank, who thinks commercial real estate is one place where he can cut costs and then continue to save money going forward. Are we going to see in San Francisco and New York, a lot of big tenants start to pare down their, uh, you know, their leases? Yes, thank you for having me this morning. So when you look at real estate overall, and and the story is still being written, but it's certainly with the tenants, as you had mentioned um, in your opening description. And so some people believe that the workers are going to be more productive outside of the house versus some people's picture is saying we still need that corporate culture environment to get innovation and growth. And so you still need that connectivity of the office. And that story is going to be with the tenant and how comfortable they feel bringing their teams back into the office market. And so we've already seen. But do they have to do that to the extent that they had them before the pandemic? I mean, I totally I'm totally down with everything you just said. But um, isn't there a new world facing us? Yeah. And and. By the way, before the new world faced us, New York City and San Francisco, that same story was was being written that people were were paring down space and and starting to to look at alternatives for their office space, whether it was hub and spoke models where there was no elevators and or or doing working outside of those main hub cities. So this story was being written pre-pandemic and it's also being written post-pandemic. And it's going to see who the winners are going to be post-pandemic and saying, what are those office leases going to look like? How are the tenants going to say, maybe we're going to take space. It's going to look a little bit different because we have to de-densify now when before we were using less space per person. Now we need to increase that space. And are we going to ask for shorter term leases, which is going to drive down valuation? And how are those tenants going to negotiate with the landlords to figure out what spacing requirements make sense for them? So those cities, it's still a story that's going to be written. And again, it's going to all depend on that tenant and that behavior of the people of how they feel when they want to get back into that office space. So co-working, which people were saying there's too much on the market and how that was going to impact. And and I think in the beginning of the pandemic, people were writing off and disparaging co-working space. But that actually might tend to be a solution for some of these larger companies that are looking to downsize from their bigger office spaces that they held in in some of these bigger cities. Were you disparaging office baseball? Co-working Was office I? space? Yeah. <laughs> of course. I'm, I'm, as soon as I get my jab, and the first one is uh, Saturday, um, I'm back in the Bloomberg 731 Lex office. I got to tell you, no I gotta tell you both, um, Lisa, right when he started WeWork, I went to hang out with – what's his name now? He's um, – can't remember his name. It's a, the billionaire. In the past. Went, ran WeWork. Anyway, I went down there about 10 <laughs> years ago, and it was such a cool space to hang out. I thought it was awesome, but now you're right. People rip on it. 
Co-working, well, not just Lisa, I wonder, I'd love to get a sense of valuation in the corporate office space. Have we seen any transactions? Because I wouldn't be surprised to see a, a building on Park Avenue or Fifth Avenue trade hands at 50% of what it would have two years ago. Have we seen anything? So there's been a lot less trading and cap rates really have been relatively consistent because because there has been a lot less trading and, and there's still a major uh, disparity between the bid and the ask. So you've seen some deals, but people are really disciplined with their capital right now, which is good. Um, and so we haven't seen as much trading. And so you're not really seeing the valuation shifts. And right now, the leases in place are still long-term leases. And again, as I mentioned before, that story is going to be once those leases are set to expire and the revaluation occurs, that's really where we're going to see uh, the trend of either the values are able to remain or they're going to change. By the way, right, what, so do you, I, sorry. what I like to know, Matt, because when we walk around New York, what really, really jumps out at you, because you're at ground level on the street, is retail space and the vacancies. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lisa, give us a sense of kind of how retail space is looking on some of these major urban markets. Yeah, and that was struggling before the pandemic, the retail space, because the biggest problem in retail is not even uh, e-commerce. The, biz- the biggest problem in retail is that oversupply of the stores. There was just there's too many out there. And so that's going to be the biggest struggle um, and, and figure out you need capital to reposition those those retail spaces. And there's really no capital in that marketplace right now. And so retail is going to, has been struggling and probably will continue to struggle um, post-pandemic. That's going to be a, a really a, the biggest concern of that. But remember, it was struggling before we even had this happen. All right. Adam so Newman. what's the, the just Newman, the near term the over the next you know 20 well, seconds? 20. I'd love to just get your thoughts here. Are we going to see a rebound, a snapback rebound in real estate? So there, a snapback rebound. So when we look at real estate overall, there's been some real winners and losers with uh, each property sector. So each property sector has been faring, um, and there's always going to be an outlier within those. So when you're looking at an industrial center, that's been been a darling of the industry, and that's going to continue yep. to be. Um, and so people are liking that hospitality. You know, leisure travel is coming back. We're reading something in the news every single day about, you know, people are ready to yeah. start traveling. And so large block and convention centers may not, right. but leisure certainly is. So okay. maybe there is hope for the hospitality sector. <laughs> hope for there. All right, Lisa, thanks so much for joining us. Lisa Nee, co-leader of the National Real Estate Practice at Eisner Amper. We all know the bull case for equities. It's been kind of ingrained into our minds now. Persistent low rates, fiscal stimulus, the reopening trade, even some some good earnings. What keeps people up at night that are bullish? Let's talk to Louis Navalier, chairman, founder, and CIO of Navalier and Associates, based in Reno, Nevada. So, Louis, the, the the bullish call in equities it's pretty solid. Are you a big proponent of that bull call? Yes. The reason is sales and earnings momentum are still accelerating. So the first quarter results are going to be the peak for sales and earnings momentum. And we're going to have easy comparisons all year because of the pandemic. But the peak of sales and earnings momentum will happen in April and May when we get those first quarter results. Well, is it going to bring with it a lot of inflation? Um, And do you believe that to be transitory? It looks like it's transitory. I think what Wall Street wanted is it wanted the Fed to acknowledge that inflation exists. And they, when they raised their inflation target this year to 2.4%, um, that calmed Wall Street down. 
The other thing is that is the dollar was weak for a while, but since late um, February, the dollar is strengthening here quite a bit. So events like what happened in Turkey earlier this week, all those things just strengthen the dollar, plus all the ECBs, um, money printing, and MMT that where they just print endless money. So that's that's all helping to strengthen the dollar. And plus our GDP, you know, they're in a double dip recession in, in uh, Europe, and uh, we're in a recovery. So. Louis, you know, there's been a question of kind of do I stick with the tried and true big tech growth names that have worked so well for me really since the financial crisis or do I play this, uh, you know, kind of pivot trade, this uh, uh, this reopening trade, if you will, and maybe go to some more uh, economically sensitive areas. How are you thinking about your portfolio allocation, you know, right here? Well, I'm a growth manager, uh, and uh, we got off to a very strong start this year, mostly from international ADRs. And then obviously we got caught up in that uh, NASDAQ capitulation a, a few weeks ago. But uh, I'm very happy with how things are, are coming back. Now, I'm not going to be buying the, the financials because that's a, a value manager's thing, but uh, the steep yield curve is great for financials, okay? As far as energy is concerned, we are starting to pick up some energy stocks, especially midstream. And... Um, so, uh, uh, you know, obviously the, that, that's uh, starting to look, look a little more growthy, although technically that's a value stock as well. And then, of course, uh, we have the chemical shortages. We have the plastic shortage in America from the big threes in Texas. So those are showing up on the energy side. So there's a, the market's broadening out here, and that's a, that's a good thing. So this whole value surge we had is a good thing. But every time you go in earnings season, you're going to have to buy the value stocks that have earnings. Why do you like, uh, or why were you buying ADRs at the beginning of the year? Is that something that you do um, at Navalier and Associates especially well? We have a lot of foreign ADRs. We've always had a lot of Israeli ADRs because you know Israel's got a great Silicon Valley. A lot of them get bought out, but we've had Chinese ADRs for some time. And our perception was is that. Uh, for lack of a better word, China won the election, and uh, and we can either beat them or join them, and um, so um, we joined them. All right, Louis. So I know wow. you growth, and there's uh, obviously tech is a part of that. Are you concerned about regulatory risk, or how concerned are you about regulatory risk for big tech? We're going to have uh, some of the big tech CEOs, Zuckerberg, and so on, uh, in front of Congress again tomorrow. I'm pretty immune to that. Uh, my biggest tech would be like a NVIDIA. Um, so that's just a chip stock, and obviously there's a chip shortage, and uh, so the semiconductor space is very healthy. But, yeah, I'm not a major holder of of, of the tech that is restricting uh, um, doing censorship and all that stuff. We're not part of that. But, but you do love the uh, Silicon Valley. I mean, the original – um, the original definition of that. You began publishing research back in 1980, so I'm guessing you're moved by, you know, Andy Grove and Cre- and Cre- crew, like the, the original um, chip producing uh, um, companies. What do you think about the Intel news today that they're going to um, start building a couple of new foundries? Well, that's great news, but there's an acute chip shortage. But you know, Intel's biggest problem has been they've been losing out to advanced micro devices, you know, Apple obviously builds their own chips. So Intel is trying to get its mojo back. But, uh, you know, worst case, they can just do what Taiwan does and start to make chips that are in short supply. By the way, in Taiwan, they got a drought over there, and that's that's another complication to our chip shortage. 
Um, but uh, we own a lot of Taiwan Semiconductor and United Microelectronics. Louis, just about 30 seconds. What's kind of your highest conviction work that you guys are doing right now? Um, I still really, really like the cloud, okay? The, so, you know, things like ServiceNow are, uh, are great. Obviously, we like cybersecurity. CloudFare, NET is a, a good stock. Um, uh, my favorite EV company is actually NIU. It's a Chinese company that mm. makes uh, electric bicycles and scooters. Um, mm. That's by far my favorite. Uh, DQ, uh, which makes polysilicon for the solar cells in China, is good. Uh, we also have you know the inverter stocks like Enphase Energy, Solar Edge. Louis, great to get some time with you, and I hope we get to talk to you again a little bit more in depth. Louis Navier uh, joining us there, founder and CEO of Navier and Associates, talking about the tech stocks that he's interested at Reno, Nevada. This is Bloomberg. Craig Trudell, who's a Europe Autos team leader for Bloomberg News, and he's got a fascinating story in the new double issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine entitled The End of Tesla's Dominance May Be Closer Than It Appears. Uh, Greg, Craig, thanks so much for joining us here. Talk to us about some of the gains that are being made by some of the traditional automakers. A lot of noise coming out of Volkswagen in particular. They had a huge week last week uh, where it really started on, on Monday uh, with an event that was kind of shamelessly similar to Tesla's battery day. <laughs> Volkswagen called theirs power day, uh, but they spent two hours talking about their battery strategy um, from manufacturing to uh, materials to partners, uh, you know, charging stations as well. They really sort of covered the gamut. And, and you know, it's, it's interesting because this is a company that really since uh, 2015, when they were caught uh, with, with the diesel emission scandal, they really sort of knew right off the bat that they need, needed to make amends. Uh, but the auto industry does move in product cycles that are, you know, five or so years. And so what we're really seeing is, is kind of a realization of this, you know, change in strategy that they were sort of forced to make away from diesels and toward electric vehicles. And what we're seeing as well is just, you know, sort of the initial fruits of that that they are now building on to really try and become you know, actually, they are coming out and saying, we want to be the world's biggest electric vehicle maker by 2025. So uh, for, for those folks who have ever lived in Germany, we have a uh, television talk show host called Harold Schmidt. And <laughs> after David Letterman got really popular in the U.S., Harold Schmidt, who kind of looks a little like Letterman, <laughs> said, you know what, I'm just going to do the exact same thing. Wears a suit, wears the sneakers, has the same, mimics his mimics Letterman's delivery, just does the whole top ten list, the whole thing, but in German. Is Deese doing that with Musk? You know, it, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> I think that's a great question. You know, it's it's not quite as bad. I think we had a little fun with this story, you know, mentioning the fact that, you know, Deese is not dating a pop star. Uh, he's not going on Joe Rogan. Uh, you know, he is still... Not uh, smoking very, weed. <laughs> he, he is still very German. He, he is definitely much more uh, buttoned up. His tweets aren't quite as much, uh, I guess, fun is a charitable way of putting uh, Musk's Twitter. Um, but, you know, I, I do think that he, he definitely is getting his message out there. He only just joined Twitter early this year. It was sort of telling that his first post, uh, he, he said something about taking market share from Elon and tagged Elon. 
Um, you know, I think he, he's been active on, on LinkedIn, but we know that that isn't necessarily the sort of social media network of choice for the meme stock crowd. Uh, so, you know, I do think Volkswagen very much is making a concerted effort to get their uh, message out there where, you know, people who've, who've bid uh, Tesla up to the moon are, are going to see what they're up to. So, Craig, you know, we've heard uh, even some similar language uh, coming out of General Motors. Mary Barra saying, you know, making some bold proclamations about their growth and their investment uh, in EVs here. It's just just a case of the automakers saying, okay, now we finally see enough global demand out there where we can make these things profitable. Is that basically what what they're all kind of coming to that conclusion? I think that's right. I think, you know, people give uh, Tesla a lot of grief uh, for, you know, Elon's uh, sort of intricacies, if, if you will. Uh, but he, what he has done is, is really sort of gotten people excited about electric vehicles. And I think he's also sort of established that, you know, if you make them compelling, people will want to buy them. I think you've also uh, got a, a situation where the industry was rightfully concerned that battery prices were not uh, to where they needed to be for this to make uh, economic sense for them. And, and they may still not be uh, where, where, you know, they need to be, uh, but, but they're getting there. And I think you're seeing the industry sort of acknowledge uh, that, yes, uh, there, there is demand if, if you really sort of put your, your weight behind uh, this effort. And I, I think you're also seeing a, a sort of a push on the part of uh, the, the regulatory side of things where they're seeing, you know, Tesla have some success and really using that as, as reason to put more pressure on the likes of, you know, Volkswagen or General Motors or what have you. I think we will see the U.S. Uh, sort of follow suit. We, we've seen a lot of action out of uh, the EU and, and China. And, you know, you do have uh, expectations that the Biden administration is going to sort of go back, uh, you know, more, more toward uh, where the Obama administration was in terms of, uh, you know, their approach to regulating the auto industry. So Bloomberg uh, readers that are paying close attention um, will know that Craig Trudell has more experience covering the global auto sector than I think any other reporter in the world. You, you've been in Detroit, right? Uh, you covered the big three there. You, you went to Asia, covered the automakers there. You're now running the, our coverage here in Europe. Who do you think is best positioned to, to claim global dominance in EVs? I, I think in terms of uh, the, the company that has the resources and the sort of existing scale and, and the wherewithal, it's no doubt about it, it's Volkswagen. I think the, the question is, you know, sort of how quickly can this company that has a lot of, um, you know, sort of factions within it, a lot of uh, key stakeholders who don't always agree. How quickly can Herbert Deese kind of get everybody rowing in the same direction? You know, I, I think we had uh, the Hyperdrive newsletter that I'll, I'll plug uh, while I'm on here uh, <laughs> today that, uh, you know, took a look at the idea that this was, this was a CEO who just late last year, uh, his, his job status was kind of up in the air because, you know, it's really cutthroat in Wolfsburg. Um, and, you know, so there, there is uh, going to be a challenge of just, you know, how quickly is he able to sort of phase out the combustion era at Volkswagen and really usher in an electric era? And that's going to be the, the question for me as, as to, you know, how quickly can they really give Tesla a run for their money? So, Craig, you're based in London, Matt's in Berlin. Let me ask you, too, what's, this, what's the demand like on the ground in Europe generally for EVs? 
You see an awful lot. I, I would be interested to hear what Matt is seeing in, in Berlin, but walking around London and obviously in these you know, lockdown times, all you can really do is walk around. <laughs> uh, you know, you do see an awful lot of, of cars plugged into uh, lampposts over here. Uh, a lot of, um, you know, BMW i3s, which, um, you know, I, I've always thought are, are very unfortunate looking, uh, but they are, they are pretty, uh, pretty neat uh, little cars. My and views have evolved on that. <laughs> you do? I, I hated them at yeah. first, but I actually love them now, now that I've uh, lived around them for so long. I think the Audi e-tron looks like it's a pretty dominant yes. player right now. Um, and I think that might be what consumers want, a, a car that looks more like a regular car like an Audi A5 and e-tron looks like that than um, an i3, which looks like, I don't know what it looks like, nothing BMW ever made before. And, and that could be the key. But Craig, you hit on the one thing that we need more of, and it's charging stations, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the charging infrastructure issue is still a, a really big problem. I think it's especially, you know, you, you think about city centers and people who, who rent and don't necessarily uh, you know, have a place uh, to, to park a, a garage. Uh, so I bring up the, the lamppost is something that I, I see a ton in London and did not see uh, around uh, New York, obviously. Uh, but but I also think, you know, even in rural areas as, as well, you know, you, you do have obviously uh, the ability for, for folks to charge in their garages, uh, which are more common, uh, but charging stations uh, definitely being needed for longer trips and that being, you know, still a concern for people that's going to keep them from, from uh, making the jump. Very cool. Craig, thanks so much for joining us. Craig Trudell wrote the story. The end of Tesla's dominance may be closer than it appears. I believe it'll be coming up in Business Week. And of course, you can get the Hyperdrive newsletter on Bloomberg as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.